welcome to episode 1656 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am brought and I am brought to you as always. <laughs> yeah, leave sure. it in, leave it in, Ben. I'm brought to you as always by our Patreon supporters, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. You know, we do Saturday pods, and sometimes you're just not as sharp, not as sharp. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, it's Sunday. Oh, That's how not no. sharp you are. <laughs> well, oh, whatever man. day it is, we are both brought to you by our Patreon supporters. <laughs> and yeah, it begins. Pitchers and catchers are reporting to spring training this week, and we are reporting to our spring training. We are embarking on, I believe, the ninth annual Effectively Wild Team Preview podcast series, which... Uh, is always, I think, a highlight for some people. People really seem to like this. It can be a bit of a slog from a scheduling and recording standpoint. But for those who have not been with us before, we are going to talk about every team between now and opening day. I think we have planned it out so that uh, if we stick to our schedule of doing two team preview podcasts per week, We will finish just before opening day and we'll still stick in some email shows and other shows in the middle of some of these weeks for variety's sake. But yeah, we'll be talking about two teams on each of these 15 season preview episodes. And we're starting today with Adam Barry of MLB.com to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays and Will Salmon of The Athletic to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. And We're going to do it the way that we've done it for the past few years, which is starting with the teams that are projected to have win totals right in the middle of the pack and then working out from there. So we'll end up with the highest and lowest projected team. And now we're starting with the teams that are sort of in the 500-ish range, according to the win totals on the Fangraphs playoff odds page. I always appreciate the preview pods, both when we do them and when I have listened to them in the past, because, uh, you know, there are always guys who you forget signed with a team. And I won't say that we completely alleviate that problem. A lot of players in baseball, a lot of, a lot of teams, a lot of shifting around. But uh, it does uh, spare me the embarrassment of um, editing things for fan graphs and being like, oh, yeah, that guy, he lives yeah. in Tampa now. <laughs> Yeah, it's good prep. It's a good primer for the season, even just, you know, reading some off-season review pieces to prepare, or looking at the roster resources, off-season moves tracker, the depth chart, or the opening day tracker. I am very grateful to Jason Martinez every year when we do this because it's a lot to keep track of otherwise, and he does that for us. So we will be talking to someone who covers each of these teams, and it'll be a little out of the ordinary, as everything these days is out of the ordinary, because we'll be asking about teams that played 60-game seasons last year, prospects who didn't play any professional games at all in some cases. We'll be talking to reporters who were and still are talking to players via Zoom. Zoom instead of being in the clubhouse. So there's certain information that our guests typically have that this year's guests may lack, but they'll give us the best information they can, and we will still pester them for win total predictions, which we do every year. And the Effectively Wild guests actually had a pretty good year last year. They did not predict the pandemic, and they didn't predict the 60-game season, except for the last few guests when we resumed the series after a long break. But going by win percentage, according to Darius Austin, who does a breakdown every year at Banish to the Pen, which I will link to from the show page, last year's Effectively Wild guests actually did a pretty good job. So we'll see if they can repeat that performance 
We'll get to the Rays and Brewers in just a moment, two teams that have had a lot of front office personnel in common. But before that, we just wanted to talk about a trio of transactions. And last time we talked about players changing teams and players who had been with one team their whole career up to that point, getting a new uniform. And this weekend, we got a few reunions and players returning to old teams or re-signing with their current teams. So I guess we can start with probably the highest profile, but perhaps least surprising signing, which is that the Dodgers brought back Justin Turner two years, 34 million with a $14 million team option for a third year. Turner, of course, last seen putting up a 1,000-plus OPS in the World Series, but then also wandering back out onto the field without a mask at times in the post-game celebration. But that did not sink his chances of returning to this team. He is a fan favorite. He seems to be a teammate favorite, despite that somewhat irresponsible activity. So Turner is back, and the Dodgers, who were already in line to be the best team in baseball, now just uh, seem to have cemented that. Yeah, I, I think that, like you said, this was this was a reunion that we anticipated for a long time. I know that he did have other suitors, and I think that those pursuits were made in earnest. Um, when we do our Brewer segment, we'll talk about that a little bit. But mm-hmm. this always seemed like the likely return. He likes LA. He is a good fit for this roster. I think that even as he has slowed down in the field some, he's still playing a, a capable third base. The bat is potent. So this seems like it was inevitable. And once they blew through the the sort of first luxury tax threshold. It didn't seem like there was much cause for them to stop going, although they are going to be one of those rare teams that I believe will actually incur draft pick penalties as a result of their projected luxury tax payroll. So I think, you know, once you decide to go big, you, you mm-hmm. may as well go big. And so yeah. here, here they are going, going big. Highest tax bracket now, yep. unless they make some moves between now and opening day to try to get below that. But Yeah, uh, Turner, you know, his defensive metrics have gone from being above average to below average, but not far below average. It still seems like he can handle that position. And he's had his injury issues, and it it seems like he's good for, you know, about 130 games or so a year, if not fewer, just because of various injury issues that pop up. But he still hits really well when he is in the lineup, and so now— The Dodgers have brought back the entire lineup, really, minus Jack Peterson and Kike Hernandez that brought them to the championship last year. And Turner is now 36 years old. And so, you know, maybe in year two of this deal or year three, if they exercise that option by that point, probably there will be a DH in the NL. And maybe that is uh, something that could preserve his health or, or mitigate any defensive shortcomings that he has by then. But Really, I'm looking forward to seeing what this lineup can do over a full season because, you know, as great as the Dodgers were last year, I really wanted to see this team firing on all cylinders over a full 162 games. And really, there's no reason to think that they will be diminished in any way from what they were last year. So it should be fun to watch. And uh, unlike Trevor Bauer, who got scooped on his own signing, I believe Justin Turner broke the news (laughs) himself. So uh, good for him. He's a newsbreaker too. That'll never not be funny, Ben. That'll <laughs> never not be funny. We got we gotta we gotta roll with the funny when we find it, and that'll yeah. never not be funny. 
<laughs> so that was uh, sort of predetermined almost, it seemed like, from the start of the offseason that Turner would be back, although it took longer than was expected. But a little more surprising, a couple other reunions, pitcher reunions that happened. James Paxton back with the Mariners. Yeah. Exciting for you, I guess. So uh, one year, eight and a half million with some potential incentives and bonuses in there. But that's a nice little homecoming. Big yeah. people back. Yeah, I, um, you know, we have talked about how my my experience of Mariners fandom has largely waned, Mm -hmm. but we have also talked uh, at length about how much I enjoy Paxton and enjoy watching him pitch. You know, I have to carry on the the torch because we have to have at least one James Paxton diehard uh, co-hosting effectively wild at any given time. And I think that this just makes a lot of sense for both sides. You know, Paxton had the injury shortened year. He's had injury issues the last couple of years. I think that he was unlikely likely to do much better than this in the open market but the one-year deal allows him to sort of reestablish value and hopefully pitch well and pitch you know a full complement of innings and I think given some of the other guys who are in the Mariners rotation this feels like a, a really solid shoring up of what was you know an interesting but not um, necessarily super reliable rotation in terms of its performance he'll slot in behind Marco Gonzalez they've already committed to doing a six-man rotation so we will see uh, how they deploy that strategy over the the course of the year but he he's well liked in that clubhouse he seems well liked in general i think that it it makes a lot of sense and uh if nothing else it will make one more day a week of of mariner starting pitching um hopefully fun to watch so yeah it seems as good as he's healthy in in the rotation <laughs> right but... which is a question mark but yes. you know that's what this deal is is meant to answer and I, I think at this point jerry just bring taiwan back just bring him back to yeah. get the whole gang back together and uh, and see what you got because mm-hmm. this does not change the ne- like move the needle for me in terms of my uh, expectations of what the mariners do i mean I, I think that they will win more games with paxton than they would have won without him but um you know this is still going to be a year where they are largely figuring out what they have with younger guys but you want to have something of a watchable team and i think Think that there was um, this I can say confidently there was a fair amount of consternation in the Mariners fan base that this team which had talked for so long about contending had done very little to contend in 2021 and had indeed signed very few uh, free agents one of whom was Ken Giles who's not going to pitch this season <laughs> mm-hmm. so I think that um, this is this is a nice little uh, gesture of good faith toward the fan base as well to bring back a guy who was who was so beloved got his own cheering section got to do a lot in Seattle to get a, a cheering section uh, you know we don't hand, hand that out it's just anybody you got to be a you got to be a real uh, standout so yeah and and I wonder if that played a part in his choosing to return to Seattle I don't know if he had equal offers financially but it seemed like there was plenty of other interest out there I mean mm-hmm. there are a lot of teams that could use someone like him who is you know high upside good when he's healthy usually yeah. for the most part and and there were other contenders so the fact that he signed with Seattle maybe it does have something to do with fond memories of his time there but yeah, you know, now you don't have to rue the James Paxton trade as much because uh, uh, he's back and I guess he'll be sharing a rotation with Justice Sheffield, who he was you know, traded 
four, four. or uh, yeah or yeah so so that'll be interesting and and yeah I mean it's uh you know the Dodgers getting Turner back now that you look at their projection with Turner they're at like 99 wins and almost a 21 percent chance of winning the World Series which is pretty impressive and the Mariners it's uh it's not that no. <laughs> but it's uh you know they have a, a 2.5 percent chance of making the playoffs according to Van Graffs right now which is sort of sad given how long it has been since they last made it but yeah at least he maybe makes it more entertaining every sixth day or so yeah exactly and Jake Arietta is back with the Cubs so this is a, a case of a player who has fallen on harder times this is not the same Jake Arietta who was last with the Cubs and so I guess their hope is that they can fix him again the way that they did the first time when he came over from Baltimore and turned into an ace. I don't know that they expect that they can do that again with Arietta, and this is uh, what a one-year, $6 million deal. That's sort of the point that Arietta is at at this point. He has had health issues also. He has lost a little stuff, but I'm sure that he has good memories of his time with the Cubs, and as we have discussed Their rotation is quite weak. In fact, even with Arietta in the fold, they are 28th in terms of projected war from their starting pitchers, according to the Fangraphs depth charts. And we've talked about how it's just a bunch of soft tossers at the top of that rotation, some of them effective, but still strange to see a rotation built out of people who throw 90 or, or less or in the low 90s, at least with Hendricks and Davies and Alec Mills, et cetera. So there is certainly a need for a, a healthy and productive Arietta in this rotation, and we'll see if that ends up being who he is after his struggles in recent years with the Phillies. Yeah, I would imagine that the the expectations are tempered here, but that, you know, he was remembered fondly, I think, by a lot of Cubs fans. You know, he was there for that World Series. He had... I think a hundred no hitters. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, Ben. But he, you know, he had some real highlights um, while he was on this roster the last time. And like you said, it's it's a year and six million dollars. It is not really. Uh, it'll be neither here nor there if it doesn't work out. But if it does, or if he just pitches consistently and allows Cubs fans to remember uh, with fondness a, a, a happier time, then I guess that's that's worth something. So mm-hmm. there you yep. go. All right. Well, nice to see some familiar faces back with old teams. And also nice to see that this winter's work is almost concluded now that the offseason is almost concluded. It was looking for a while like we might have to start this season preview podcast series before before many prominent free agents had signed. But once it became clear that spring training would start on time and that the season would presumably start on time, a lot of deals got done all of a sudden. Teams realized that they couldn't play the waiting game any longer. And so there are actually only eight of the Fangraph's top 50 free agents remaining. Seven, if you trust the rumors about Brad Miller signing with the Phillies. And all of the top 17 free agents are off the board so the only ones from the top 50 still out there Jackie Bradley Jr. number 18 Taiwan Walker number 22 Jake Odorizzi number 24 Trevor Rosenthal number 36 Brett Gardner number 38 Rick Porcello, number 43, Matt Shoemaker, number 44, and then Brad Miller at 49. So these season preview pods should give us a pretty complete picture of how these clubs stack up, and it's time to get started. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Adam Berry to talk about the Tampa Bay race.
All right, so to kick off our 2021 team preview series, we are joined by Florida man and Tampa Bay Rays beat writer for MLB.com, Adam Berry. Adam, last time we talked to you, you were previewing the Pirates, whom you've been covering for several seasons, but you were not brand new to covering the Rays or to Florida, for that matter. I guess you followed the Chris Archer path of Florida to Pittsburgh and back to Florida again. So welcome back to the show and also to the race beat. I prefer to think of it as Chris Archer following me, but yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be back on the show and good to be back on the race beat. Yeah. So how did you end up making this transition back again? Yeah. So I've been, I've been covering the Pirates um, since 2015 for MLB.com. Uh, but before that, I'd been uh, based out of Tampa uh, for MLB as kind of a backup news desk type reporter. Um, and then we had a bunch of beat changes this offseason, as you may have seen. It feels like we need uh, name tags when we all show up to spring training as far as who's covering what. Um, and I think people had known that I was looking to go home at some point. My wife and I have been trying to get back to Tampa and the Rays beat opened up when uh, Juan Toribio, who did just such a great job covering the Rays the last three years, uh, went to go follow the Andrew Friedman path uh, from Rays to Dodgers. And uh, as an opportunity to go home, uh, you know, I, I find the race to be such a fascinating and interesting team in a lot of ways. You know, there's hometown connections there and uh, just really excited to get back and hopefully get out of the snow here in Pittsburgh after spring training and move back down to Florida. So I guess we can start with Archer since you've been covering him for years now. So he is not new to you, although I'm sure you're playing catch up in other respects. So the race had quite a, an offseason overhaul when it came to their rotation this winter. Mm-hmm. They let Charlie Morton go, they traded Blake Snell, and they have replaced them with Archer and with podcast favorite Rich Hill and Colin McHugh and Michael Waka and Luis Patino came back in the Snell trade as well. So no sure things in that group. A a lot of players who have been promising or, or have performed well in the past, but have had maybe injury issues or inconsistency, et cetera. So mm-hmm. how do you see that all shaking out this year? And I guess you can start with Archer since you've seen him up close. Yeah, I, I think it kind of touches on the, the big picture plan for their rotation is just to fill you know, the uncertainty as far as how teams are going to manage the increase in workload from a 60-game season to a, to a full 162-game season. You know, how do you handle that in a healthy way? How do you, you know, not overtax arms, especially young arms and, you know, guys who are coming off injuries and maybe only threw 30 innings the year before or Archer who threw no innings last year uh, while he was rehabbing from thoracic outlet syndrome surgery. Just what do you do with these guys? And the Rays plan seems to be just throwing their depth at it. And they certainly have the depth to do it. Uh, so, you know, you can line up a rotation and you can say Glasnow, Yarbrough, Waka, Hill, Archer. Uh, but I think realistically, you're probably going to be looking at something like 10 guys or 10 or 12 guys who are going to kind of combine, uh, you know, maybe to throw 100 innings each or 100 innings each on average uh, to sort of cover that gap, you know, so it's not going to be five guys getting you from uh, day one to, to, you know, game 162. It's going to be maybe these guys working as openers or as tandem starters or as, you know, it's some sort of six man rotation where you're, you know, plugging guys in and out. And I don't necessarily think they have it all set in stone yet. I think they're going to wait and see how it goes in spring training because, 
like you said, with Archer, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding these people that they've added uh, this offseason. You know, Archer is coming off a really rough stint in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, Rich Hill is going to be 41, I believe. And, you know, he's obviously had some injury history uh, in the past. And Michael Waka hasn't been quite what he was a couple of years ago. So I think they're going to wait and see how it plays out in spring training. But they have the depth, not just in those guys that they've added, but in the younger arms, the Shane McClanahan's and Luis Patino's and Josh Fleming's of the world that, uh, they can kind of make up for it as the season goes along and, and sort of mix and match and, and, and see what works out, you know, once they kind of get rolling. I want to ask about another addition from that big Padres trade, which is Francisco Mejia. The mm-hmm. Rays brought back Mike Zanino. They traded for Mejia. You know, Zanino has not been offensively productive for long stretches. I think we can probably say that the book is closed on the kind of offensive player he is at this point. Mejia yeah. is an interesting case because I don't know how much Dominican winter ball action you got up to watching, but he, he lost starting catching time in Lidom to Christian Bethencourt, I think. The receiving is still just really rudimentary. The framing seems to be bad, but if there's any team that's going to be able to overhaul this guy, it seems like it might be the Rays. So I'm curious what their expectations are for him. I know he's projected in a bench role right now, but yeah. do they view his framing as sort of a fixable thing, or are they just content with him to play a bench role and sort of back up Zanino and then they'll kind of go from there. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good description of it is that, you know, they have the certainty of Zanino um, who's going to come in and be a defense first guy, like you said. Um, And, you know, he can work with the staff and he has familiarity with the guys who are coming back and they trust that he's good enough defensively and, you know, game calling and pitch framing and all that kind of stuff to get more out of the young arms. But I do think they like Mejia. You know, they I, I went back and I, I wasn't on the beat at the time, but I went back and I watched, uh, you know, Eric Neander's press conference. And I've, I've spoken to people since then that they kind of view him as a change of scenery guy, somebody who could come in and will benefit from their staff and their coaching and their, you know, their analytics and the way that they work with players that, you know, not only can they get more out of the bat uh, than we've seen from him in the majors, which isn't quite the prospect that, uh, you know, we thought he was going to be uh, when he was coming up through the minors offensively, but they can improve him defensively. And maybe that doesn't happen right away. Maybe it takes time and it takes work with Zanino and their staff. But over time, I do think they see this uh, this guy as somebody who can uh, be a long-term contributor behind the plate. And I think that's, you know, obviously he was a big part of the trade. Luis Patino was certainly the headliner uh, in the Snell trade for them. And the other two prospects, they got really good. But I, I think they targeted Mejia because he fills a short-term and uh, potentially a long-term need behind the plate as well. So uh, I think he's going to be a guy to watch in spring training just as far as the work that they do with him. Because you're right. I mean, the defense is questionable. And the fact that he hasn't hit in the majors all that much kind of leaves you wondering what his profile and what his future is. Because if his bat's not going to be the carrying tool, what is it going to be? Because <laughs> we already know it's not the defense. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm really curious to see what they do with him this spring because – you know the Rays aren't going to run with a guy behind the plate who's bad defensively. That's just not their style. So I think it's definitely going to be a focal point for him uh, early on in his tenure with the team. I don't know whether the Snell trade was motivated at all by the pandemic or whether that's just the pattern. That's what the Rays do. They Mm. trade established players for young guys and start the cycle all over again. But I do wonder whether the pandemic hurts a team like the Rays more or less than the typical team in that to the extent that their revenue is lower to begin with, you'd think there are thinner margins there. On the other hand, obviously, they have lower attendance to begin with, and so they are losing less revenue in that sense when fans are not in the stands. So do you think that they were hit harder by this than other teams or less hard, or is it possible to say? Yeah, I think it's hard to say at this point. Um, They mostly avoided big staff cuts in the front office as far as layoffs. Um, But 
owner Stu Sternberg also kind of set the tone uh, back in December for at the very least not adding to payroll uh, like their World Series opponent has done and continues to do. Uh, when he told the Tampa Bay Times that the team took a massive financial hit, uh, Sternberg's quote to Mark Topkin was, it was a number I wouldn't have imagined to lose in a baseball season, uh, although he would not say how much uh, that was. So he apparently did say it was more than if there had been work stoppage with no games um, and added that it'll be three to five years before they understand the quote unquote new normal uh, due to the loss of revenue, not getting a revenue sharing check, uh, not benefiting from the postseason revenue they would have had. Uh, in a year like this and, and things along those lines. But, you know, this is a front office that always has to operate with a budget in mind. That's just the way they've done things. Um, I don't know if the Snell trade was motivated by finances so much as it it was just another raise offseason type of trade. Um, I don't think they went into the offseason wanting to trade him. Uh, when they got the offer they did, they felt it was time to, to pull the trigger and make that move. Um, and they've since spent about $14 million on pitchers with Archer, Waka, uh, Rich Hill, and Colin McHugh which is a little more than Snell would have made for them this season. So uh, the move I wonder about in that regard is the decision not to pick up Charlie Morton's club option and then lose him to the Braves for the same $15 million that he would have made during that option year. You know, if they'd known that they were going to trade Snell, would they go back and still do the same thing with Morton? And if the answer is yes, then I think it's really fair to question just how much of this was uh, financially motivated. Uh, but I, I don't know. And I think we'll find out as time goes on not only with the Rays, but with every team, uh, how the pandemic has affected and continues to affect their finances. I want to take a detour into that farm system. And, mm -hmm. you know, we'll ask about some of the individual guys, I think, in a second. But I have just a broader question, because clearly this organization is one that has done a phenomenal job of organizing and sort of bringing together their farm. They scout well, they do player development well, they, you know, sort of the, the upside of these trades where they ship out guys like Snell is that they get um, meaningful reinforcements back. And I'm curious for an organization that is so dependent on the continued sort of churn and development of those guys either into playable big leaguers or into prospects who can net playable big leaguers back in trade, what effect the the long layoff had? Because, you know, the Rays, they had the alt site, they, I believe, did instructs, but mm -hmm. what was their approach to player development for the guys who they weren't able to bring sort of onto the complex and get their hands on in a in a more meaningful way in 2020? Yeah, I get the sense that it was really individualized, which is, you know, just having staff check in on players, you know, create programs for them, you know, make sure they're throwing, you know, X number of bullpens or taking X number of swings uh, per week and, and doing the best that they can with that. And then trying to get as many guys into instructs uh, as they could at the end of the season, which I think that was a really big camp and a really big program, just so they could have that touch point uh, heading into the full off season. So that, you know, it wasn't a full year, uh, basically without seeing them. And you know, it does affect them because the, the strength of their system is not necessarily just the upper level, you know, top prospects that you're going to see on a, you know, on right. a top prospects list, but it's the depth and it's, you know, they need, you know, a Josh Fleming to come out of nowhere and contribute on their team at some point. So, you know, you can't risk that guy losing a full year of work. So I think kind of like everybody else, they did the best that they could with, you know, given the situation and the, the circumstances, but it's going to be a big spring once they, they do start getting these minor leaguers back into camp. And I, I think that's reflected a little bit too in some of the guys you saw on their non-roster list, you know, it's Shane Boz and, um, you know, Joe Ryan and some of these younger pitchers who they probably didn't get the, the game reps that they wanted to last year, but now they're going to be able to get a little bit more hands-on work with the, the big league staff and maybe getting games this spring uh, to try to make up for that lost time to the extent that you can. 
So Wander Franco got his first big league camp invite. Mm -hmm. So the hype is uh, at a fever pitch now. (laughs) Do you think that he will start the season with the Rays? What do you expect for his role and playing time and performance? Yeah, I don't see him breaking camp with the Rays. Um, Just for one, I think they're pretty well set uh, in the infield with Willie Adamas at shortstop, Brandon Lau at second. You know, they have a bunch of options at third base with Joey Wendell and Yandy Diaz, and I'm sure they want to get Wander Franco, uh, you know, some, some more game reps and get him back on the field uh, in the minors just because he was just at the all-site instructs last year, although he spent a little bit of time with the big league team in the postseason just, you know, hanging around in the uh, in the postseason bubble. But, I I mean, I don't think it's outrageous to say that he's going to be up at some point this season. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they start moving him around a little bit uh, defensively just you know, just in case there is an opening at second base, if there's an injury or third base or something that, you know, they can plug and play this guy because the bat's obviously, you know, elite and it's going to play wherever you want to put him defensively. Um, so I, I'm definitely going to watch where they're uh, where they're lining him up in spring training defensively because, you know, I, I don't necessarily, we've heard some trade rumors about Willie Adamas this offseason. You know, I believe uh, C. Trent Rosencrantz, the athletic reporter that the, the Reds checked in uh, on, on Willie Adamas and, you know, the Rays obviously haven't moved him, so it shows that they're not quite ready to just plug and play Wander Franco, uh, you know, on opening day at shortstop yet. But I mean, I, I, I'm just really excited to see what this guy's going to do offensively, like everybody else. And I think if he gets off to a hot start in the minors, you know, the, the countdown's going to begin even more, and the, the you know the Wander Franco fever, the Wander watch, if you will, is going to get even more out of control. Wander vision. Wander vision. Let's go. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> I'll never get away from it now. <laughs> well, if if Wander is sort of the high high of the the race system, I think we need to talk about some of the guys who have who have gotten a little bit derailed, which seems to have happened um, on the pitching side. What is the current state of Brent Honeywell? <laughs> Great question. Um, he's throwing. Uh, you know, I believe that they expect him to be ready to go in spring training. And I don't necessarily know if he's a guy that you can count on being part of this opening day pitching plan where he's going to be involved in that tandem starter mix or anything just because of the number of arm uh, injuries and surgeries and the time that he's missed. I mean, the last time he threw a pitch in a game, 2017, like there, there's just going to be a lot of questions and a lot that he has to prove. Uh, but the reports that I've heard since I started on the beat were are good. You know, he's in he's in good health. He's throwing. Uh, you know, they hope to see him out there relatively soon. Uh, you know, it's just going to obviously be a lot of question as to whether or not he can get back to being the, the prospect and the you know have the the upside and the ceiling that he did before all these injuries kind of like you said derailed him. I think is probably the right word. He's definitely part of the plan, though. I mean, he's a, he's a guy that they're counting on uh, being a contributor at some point this year. Is that also the case for Brendan McKay? A little more uncertainty there because. Uh, you know, he had the shoulder surgery last year, and it's so tough to evaluate and plot out timelines coming back from shoulder surgery. Uh, they do, again, count on him being a contributor later this year. Uh, I don't necessarily think he will be able to be part of the, the mix uh, right away, you know, from the jump on opening day. Um, but certainly, guys, they're counting on later on if he's healthy. And I, I think when you're talking about the injuries that these two guys have dealt with, that also explains why they have gone out and added the depth, you know, in, in Hill and uh, Waka and uh, Colin McHugh is another recent addition, um, pending physical. If that if that deal goes through, just to to guard against, uh, you know, these guys coming back slow or not coming back at full strength, because you know Eric Neanders described this as a little bit of a transition year for the rotation. But 
you need to make sure that what you're transitioning to is, is going to be good to go and effective, you know, coming off of a World Series run that you can't just be counting on these young guys to contribute right out of the gate, especially given all the questions about their injuries. So I think the hope is that he's back at some point, uh, probably, you know, a month or two into the season, if all goes well. I want to ask about a guy who is still technically prospect eligible, and we'll kind of take this in two parts because I think there's sort of a serious part of this that we need to address, and then I want to kind of get a sense of what the team's expectations are for Randy Rosarena. So he was involved in an off-season custody dispute. I know that he is not going to face any criminal charges as a result of that. Is there any concern on the team's part that you know, sort of separate from that aspect of it, that he might have any issues with availability because of MLB's investigation, or is that sort of a wrapped question at this point? I don't necessarily know if it's wrapped, but I haven't heard any concerns um, from the team as far okay. as his availability goes. Yeah, I believe he's good to go for spring training. I expected to be there on time and everything. Okay, well, with that that sort of address, I, th- I am curious what your expectations and the team's expectations are. He's an interesting case because, you know, he had this very meaningful and sort of significant shift in his physicality. He made better use of his quarantine than I think any of us did. Um, and so... You know, there has been this sort of shift in his profile. I know that Eric Longhang was sort of high on him before the season and mm-hmm. hasn't seen a reason to sort of course correct that. But I also think that folks are are conscious of how small a sample this was, even considering his postseason performance. So what are the expectations for Rosarena in 2021? Yeah, I do think they're trying to be careful to temper expectations that he's not going to be the best player on the planet like he was last October. Uh, you know, they don't want to set that on him coming into camp that he is just going to carry the offense and carry the lineup that hasn't had any meaningful additions really this offseason. But they are definitely counting on him to be a big part of it. You know, when you, you hear Kevin Cash talk about the lineup and why it's going to be better, they're talking about, you know, a healthy Austin Meadows, you know, hopefully a healthier Yandy Diaz, uh, you know, a full season, a better season from G-Man Choi, and then a full season of Randy Rosarina. Uh, you know, the, I, I just, I, I, they're definitely not going to count on him to be the guy that he was in the postseason. You know, that power surge was insane and uh, not reasonable to expect from anybody, but he's definitely going to be a big part of it. You know, they're going to put him out there probably in left field every day and, and let him go and, you know, see if he can be, um, you know, the guy that they kind of expected coming back uh, from quarantine. Like you said, he made a lot better use of the, uh, of the downtime as far as improving his physicality than, uh, then most of us are, he followed through on the plans that all of us made going into that time, at least. Um, and he came back as a, as a changed player, you know, getting the ball in the air more, hitting for more power. And uh, I definitely think he's going to be a really central part of the lineup moving forward. Yeah, I wanted to ask about Diaz, who you just mentioned. He had a really productive year at the plate, but it did yep. not take the shape that anyone would have expected. I think he hit for almost no power, which yeah. when you look at Gandhi Diaz, you do not think almost no power. <laughs> but he was still very valuable because he walked a ton and had a 428 on base percentage, but he hit 66% of his batted balls on the ground, which is just really extreme. And he's been a heavy ground ball guy for years now. And even when he hit 14 homers, which seems sort of like a power breakout in 2019, he still hit half of his batted balls on the ground. So are they trying to change that? Does he need to change that? I mean, if he can run another 428 OBP, it, it doesn't matter that much. But can he be more of a power threat? 
Right. I, I think at a certain point you have to wonder if he just kind of is what he is, you know, what he, what he has been so far. And if he is just going to be that high ground ball guy who runs into one and gets it in the air every once in a while. I think when you see somebody with just that that body and that physicality and that strength, then you're going to want to to get more power out of him. But you're right. I mean, he was a really useful player and a really valuable player with the on-base percentage last year. Um, and even when he came back, you know, he kind of rushed back from from the injury at the end of the year to get into the postseason and everything. And uh, it was the same thing. He was walking. He wasn't hitting. Uh, you know, he wasn't hitting a ton, for a ton of power, obviously, but he's still seeing the ball well. It seemed, and, and you just kind of wonder if they can. All right, you've 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 taken that stride. And you're seeing the ball well. Now let's focus a little bit more on seeing pitches that you can drive, as opposed to just seeing what you can get a bat on. And I, I think that will be the goal for him uh, heading into this season, because they are going to count on him to be at least part of uh, you know a, a platoon type situation at third base, whether it's with Yoshi Tsutsugo or Joey Wendell, or if Yandy Diaz bounces over to first a little bit with G-Man Choi and Mike Brasso, um, they have a lot of options, obviously, on the, on, on the corner infield spot. So uh, I think they're going to give him a chance to prove what he can be again. Um, and, and ideally, they'd like to see more power, obviously, at least a little bit more like 2019 than, than this past year. I will not pretend that I think that the number savvy Rays have any real concern about Brandon Lau's postseason performance, but it does, it did stand in sort of sharp contrast to what he was able to achieve during the season. You know, he went from a 150 WRC plus, albeit again in in a small sample, to uh, 25 in that postseason run. Is there, were there any sort of adjustments that were made there, or is he just, you know, the, the sort of on the losing end of some bad Babbitt luck and they expect him to be sort of righted and ready to go once stuff gets going here in 2021. Yeah, I think a little bit of bad luck and also probably just a guy who tried to put a little too much pressure on himself in the postseason, especially with some of the guys who weren't there or some of the guys who are coming back from injury or some of the guys who are struggling. You know, he might have felt a little bit of pressure to kind of carry the carry the lineup. Um, and obviously, it's just well known that when you try to do that, things tend to go opposite um, but I do think they want to address some of the, the swing and miss tendencies and the strikeouts really piled up on him in, in the postseason. So I think that'll be a little bit of a focus, not just for Lau, but team wide, because this is, you know, they've talked about being a little more athletic and putting the ball in play and um, not relying so much on the three true outcomes, uh, I guess. So uh, Lau would definitely fall in that bucket, I think, because I mean, the player that he was in the regular season and the player that he's been the past three years is obviously really useful and productive. He doesn't have to try to be the hero of the lineup every night, which I think probably he felt some of that pressure uh, heading into the postseason and uh, probably affected the results as well. With the farm system as rich as it is, do you think that the Rays will follow in the Padres' footsteps when it comes to trading a lot of players just because they have a surplus at certain positions and the Padres have managed to make a ton of trades for other players without even surrendering some of their top prospects, although they traded Patino to the Rays? But do you think that just kind of looking at it, is it a mix of upper level and lower level guys so that they will come in waves or will there be a, a crunch? Cause it seems like the race have just had like too many players on their 40 man <laughs> at certain points, just cause there's too much talent. Right. Right. That's what you call a good problem. Right. Uh, I think that they're a team that can use prospect depth, obviously, obviously to acquire help uh, if need be at the trade deadline or in the off season, or, you know, they can be creative with moves, but you know, one thing Deander said after the Snell trade, uh, and this kind of harkens back to something I heard in Pittsburgh, which raises your, you know, raises your ears a little bit, is that they view, you know, their team as one that can contend year in and year out, uh, and they view that as kind of their best path to a World Series is by getting into the postseason as often as possible and never having a step back and, you know, never having a down cycle and never having to go through the full rebuild and. 
uh, you know, tear down process. So I would think that they're going to try to hold on to as much of this depth as they can. Um, obviously, they're going to be roster crunches that they have to deal with, uh, especially as far as adding guys under the 40 man. But they are pretty, pretty well spaced out. And, you know, you've seen them make moves with that in mind, you know, where they'll go out and they'll get a guy in a ball. They'll trade somebody off the 40 man to get a, a prospect they like in a ball, knowing that his clock is a little bit further back and they won't have to worry about that pressure. Uh, for a couple of years. So I, I think they definitely have the long view in mind when they do all of this, uh, you know, when they make all these moves. And I, I, I wouldn't expect them to just go full Padres uh, and start moving some of their best guys. That's just not the way the Rays work. They have to be, you know, a draft and developer, acquire and develop type team that, you know, develops its stars from within uh, to maintain that kind of model that they want where they're going to be competitive year in and year out. And whether that's sustainable for a small market team that, you know, has the payroll that that they do, I don't know. Uh, you know, we haven't seen a lot of great models for it in the past. Even the Rays had a, a step back from, what was it, 2014 to, to 17, where they, you know, they, they took a step back in, as far as their player development system went, and they suffered the consequences in the majors as a result. So I think they understand the importance of, uh, not just building up the farm system and having the options there, but maintaining it and keeping as much of that uh, star power and then depth, especially uh, as they can. I wonder about the the sort of human effect of that approach. Um, yeah. And, you know, as someone who's very familiar with the market from just your own life there, maybe you can speak <laughs> to this on the fan side as well as the player side. But, you know, I think that when Snell was traded, it was clear that there was some animosity, um, not only around him getting pulled in the World Series, as we saw, but just sort of the general approach they have of extending these guys often to below market deals and then shipping them out when they get expensive relative to the rest of the team or when they start to advance even in their arbitration years. Yeah. What is your sense of how the clubhouse as it's currently constituted views that approach and what is the effect that that has on the fan base? I mean, I imagine there are some Rays fans in Tampa who still have their Archer jerseys who are thrilled <laughs> they're going to be able to bust those out again, but that kind of return path isn't a given and it isn't one that we've seen a ton here. So there's the sort of a feasibility of executing that on the field and, and staying competitive, but what about yeah. the effect that it has on the people involved. Yeah, I, I can't speak too well from the player side just because in, in these times I haven't actually had right, the you... opportunity to meet and speak to a lot of players. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, except for over Zoom. I, I, I do know just from hearing guys and talking to the players that I have spoken to that they understand it's part of the business when you when you play for a team like the Rays that, you know, you're going to have a chance to compete pretty much every year, but there's going to be hard decisions. And, you know, you don't know if you're necessarily safe for the long haul. I mean, how many years was Chris Archer in trade rumors before he finally got traded? Like that wears on you. That does grind on you. And I can speak to the Archer side because I saw him come through the other side to Pittsburgh that, you know, he felt like there was a weight off his shoulders when it finally happened because he, he didn't realize how much that just does kind of, you know, bear you know bear down on you that you're, you're always wondering all right am i the next one or who else is gone or how are we going to get what are they going to think of this time how are they going to get through how are we going to deal with this one you know after you lose a, a blake snell or, or whoever it may be and you know I, I do think that's tough to deal with but the difference from the Rays side i think compared to some of these other teams that have made similar moves this offseason is that they they even with the payroll being what it is they do make these moves with an eye on competing and contending you know they they come into it with the goal of contending still kind of at the forefront of what they do. Um, from the fan side, I, I do think it can probably be exhausting. You know, it, it's good to have a team that's going to be competitive year in and year out. And you know that, you know, the team's always going to be interesting at the very least to watch. But, you know, I mean, my wife's family are Rays fans and, you know, I heard from them when Blake Snell got traded and that stunk. You know, this is a team coming off a World Series run. You expect them to come back. Uh, you know, bigger and better with the, you know, a lot of the familiar faces that were a part of this team that you really grow to love. And I, I think you can 
you know, you have to feel two things at the, at the same time, I guess, if you're a Rays fan or a fan of any team kind of like this, I've said this about the Pirates in the, in the past, you know, as they're going through their rebuild is that you can understand intellectually that maybe it's the smart thing to do or the way that they feel like they have to go about it. You can get the process behind it, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to like it emotionally. You know, you can be sad that Blake Snell is leaving and you probably should be sad. And you know that Evan Longoria wasn't a Ray for life. I mean, that was a guy that I saw when I was a, a fan living in, in Clearwater before and then covered him and, you know, he was the face of the franchise and there was so much that they were trying to build around him. And then all of a sudden he's gone. And, you know, I, I, I think you can still have those emotional ties and it, it, it makes it really complicated as a fan. And I get that. And, you know, I, I think the one thing that the Rays do to try to make that process a little bit easier is just, promise a contender year in and year out. Because if you're also moving these guys and just saying like, hang with us four or five years, you know, we'll, we'll have an interesting team on the field, then then that can really grind on you as a fan, uh, even more so than just losing your favorite players year in and year out. Right. There was a lot of conversation during the playoffs last year about whether the Rays play an aesthetically displeasing brand of baseball. And I don't know how much of that was coming from, you know, national people kind yeah. of concerned trolling and how much of it was <laughs> what Rays fans actually think. But you know, there are aspects to that that you look at pitchers getting pulled earlier and, you know, openers and bulk guys, although they've gone away from openers a bit or at least did last year. But that kind of thing, it can be analytically interesting at first, but then maybe it's not as entertaining to watch a, a parade of relievers you've never heard of come out and, and be dominant, although sometimes their dominance is entertaining and some of the individual rays are fun to watch and certainly mm-hmm. have you know been spectacular defensively. They made a lot of highlights that were great. And as you noted, winning is pretty pleasing no matter how you do it. So right. do you think race fans care about that? I mean, does your wife's family <laughs> care whether uh, Blake Snell gets to face the order the third time through when Blake Snell was actually on the team? I think they certainly did in the World Series uh, yeah. before that. <laughs> before that, probably not as much because, you know, winning does cure a lot, uh, cure a lot in that regard. And uh, they're a fun team of personalities. And I think that's that's kind of always been the case going back is that, you know, it's fun to watch Willie Adamas play and it's fun to watch him uh, in the dugout. It's fun when they add a guy like Brett Phillips, who's a local guy who is, you know, has such a big personality and they're a really easy team to root for, I think, just as far as the people and, uh, you know, the way that the, the emotion that they play with and, you know, the, the stuff that they're able to do. I mean, you mentioned like the parade of relievers, like it's fun to root, I think probably for a Pete Fairbanks who comes from, you know, the edge of baseball to, you know, being a high leverage reliever in the playoffs. Like that's, that's fun. And you can get invested in those guys uh, while they're here. Obviously that's sort of the challenging part of it. But as far as the style of play, I, I maybe there's a little bit of that kind of concern trolling thing going on where we're like, are we sure this is good for the long-term future of the sport? If everybody's going to try to be the Rays and, you know, this is what the game becomes where there's not, you know, the the premier starting pitchers, you know, that you can count on, you can put on the marquee and everything like that. And I, I think that's certainly fair, but I, I I would say not having a ton of familiarity with every race fan and the way that the, you know, the broader fan base necessarily feels that after the last season that it doesn't really matter or affect race fans as much when it's their team and they're winning and they're, you know, doing what they can. And you can have a, a separate conversation about that when it comes to something like arbitration and you see Ryan Yarbrough get, uh, 2.3 million, which the team filed for as opposed to the 3.1 million that he filed for. And you can wonder, all right, how much of this is because of the role and the fact that, uh, you know, he was an opener for his, or a bulk guy for his first uh, couple years in the majors and how's that affecting the team? And is that good? And, you know, are the players worried about this? But as far as just the, the actual product on the field, I don't think it's a huge concern for Rays fans as long as they're winning. 
Well, as long as they're winning is sort of one of the questions of this season, right? So it's an unusual thing for a World Series contender to go from that to being projected, at least by our projections, uh, to end up fourth in their division. You know, part of this is that the AL East (laughs) is competitive. And part of this is perhaps that projections don't always do a great job of capturing sort of distribution of outcomes that would lead to a team like the Rays outperforming those projections, right? Where they aren't able to necessarily account, at least not perfectly, for prospects who are going to pop. And so what is the sense around the team of where they stack up relative to their competition within the division? What are their expectations for 2021? Yeah, I think they expect to be competing right back at the top of the division, uh, the top of the American League again. And I, I think you're definitely right that you know, they're going to be projected to take a step back because you're without a Morton, you're without a Snell, and you're counting on uh, less proven guys, especially uh, pitching-wise, and then, you know, you're counting on basically the same group of hitters uh, for the most part coming back next year, Um, but I I think they expect to be right back in the mix. I mean, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to say all the right things about defending the American League title and all that kind of stuff and, you know, competing with the Yankees and showing that they can still uh, stick it to the higher payroll teams in their division, Um, but I think it's going to be harder this year because the Yankees are also uh, pretty well reloaded, um, but the, the group that they have, I think the Blue Jays have made a lot of really good moves. Uh, they've spent money this offseason to be interesting, and I, I think the Red Sox are going to be better, uh, certainly, than they were last year and more competitive and make that a little bit tougher. So I, I think it's going to be harder on them, and I think they recognize that. They're not they're not stupid. They're not coming in saying, you know, here we go, it's the same group coming back, and we expect to be even better based on, you know, just the, the young guys coming up or whatever. They recognize there are going to be challenges, and people are going to expect uh, less of them, but they still very much view themselves as being able to uh, take steps forward in different areas and be very much the same competitive uh, contending team that they were the last two years. We'll ask you for your win total prediction in just a second, but do you think that we will continue to hear anything about this sister city concept with Montreal? That seemed so far-fetched when it was initially floated, but it was uh, brought up again last year. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know where things stand with the, the franchise and its current location and ballpark, but do you see that still being part of the story this year? I would imagine it's going to come up again at some point uh, as the year goes on and things hopefully, hopefully get back closer to normal. Uh, we've seen proposals to redevelop the Tropicana Field site in St. Petersburg uh, with versions of those proposals that included ballparks and others that did not. Um, and Mayor Rick Kreisman actually went public with one of the team's proposals for the site's redevelopment rights. <laughs> so that is still very much a topic of often contentious conversation in St. Pete and uh, the Tampa Bay area as a whole. Uh, in that same interview with Mark Topkin that I referenced earlier, Stu Sternberg said the split season plan is, quote, the only option in my mind. Uh, which gives you a pretty good idea of where he's at on that front uh, as far as it being the plan moving forward. Uh, Sternberg did say that they've made a lot of progress on the Montreal side as far as business and stadium plans. Uh, He's really pleased with how things are going north of the border. Uh, So it seems like things are progressing there, which means it is going to come up again. Uh, Just not sure how far it's going to get this year and how to balance that with some of the issues they've had uh, trying to get a new ballpark locally. Um, The Ybor City plan obviously went nowhere a couple years ago. Um, I don't know. It just feels like we're reaching a a pretty critical juncture with this, uh, with the Tropicana Field lease expiring after the 2027 season and St. Pete wanting to redevelop that important piece of land uh, near their growing downtown. So I'm not entirely sure where the talks stand as of now. And I I think it could be a little awkward if they're really public with the Montreal stuff while also welcoming back fans to the Trop and trying to defend an American League title and putting the focus on that. But 
uh, I would imagine those conversations will continue to take place and we'll hear more about it as the year goes on. What influence do you think the Rays have had on front offices around the league? I'm asking because you probably saw some of this in (laughs) Pittsburgh where, you know, it seems like the Rays have kind of become the model for a lot of other franchises. And in some cases, you know, Bloom or Andrew Friedman or or others will go to those teams or, you know, we're about to talk about the Brewers and and they've had a lot of former (laughs) Rays executives go there. So there has been that direct kind of connection. But then also it seems like a lot of teams want to emulate the Rays a, maybe just to save money, but also to improve player development, for instance, where, you know, the Pirates sort of saw themselves yep. get fleeced by the Rays in the Archer trade and saw their players go elsewhere and get great. And I think they kind of looked at themselves and said, what are we doing wrong? And, and they've made major changes there. So the Rays model, you know, maybe it's just miserly owners who think, boy, it would be nice to win that many games without spending much. But also, do you think that they have had an impact on how front offices operate and, you know, how teams try to develop talent? Yeah, I I think when Ben Charrington came in as Pirates general manager, and I was there for that transition, he talked about, uh, you know, a small market team or a low payroll team or whatever needing to um, identify, acquire, develop, and deploy talent. Those were his four kind of buzzwords. And I was like, well, that sounds a lot like what the Rays do better than anybody else, which is, you know, find that talent and maximize, uh, maximize players' abilities, you know, make it a player-centered culture rather than an organization-centered uh, thing where you're kind of passing down philosophies and ideas. You know, instead you're looking at each individual player and trying to get the best out of them. I, I think that's a good thing for baseball to adopt that, uh, that particular part of their philosophy. But yeah, I, I think... They are still, in many ways, the model for, you know, small market success and, you know, especially now player development, the fact that they've combined such a competitive major league roster with the best farm system in the game. You know, I think you're still going to see a lot of teams trying to emulate uh, the way that they go about doing things. Uh, You know, ideally, that would also involve uh, spending a little bit more money. And you did see the Rays, uh, you know, in in the past, they did sign Charlie Morton to, uh, you know, a two-year, $30 million deal for them. That, you know, that was a pretty decent-sized expense for their franchise based on their history so yeah i think you're going to see a lot of teams still trying to emulate what they do and then personnel wise their influence is obviously uh impossible to deny i looked back the other day at the 2010 race team that i first covered as an intern and i think they have something in the range of six or seven managers off of that team and then the front office personnel that have expanded from there uh, is, is pretty outrageous uh, you know eric neander was pretty low in the in the race front office or a little bit lower in the race front office uh, back then and obviously now he's running the team and Andrew Friedman's in LA and James Click and uh, yeah. Bloom and Matt Arnold and all these guys have just spread so far throughout the game that uh, there's just going to be some natural influence there from them taking best practices and whatnot from the race to, to different organizations. All right. Well, one last thing occurred to me on the topic of, you know, the economic impact of the way the race operate. Ryan Yarbrough just lost his arbitration case and the proceedings are are confidential. So I imagine that you don't know exactly what was said or, you know, what the winning arguments were in that case. But that was of interest to a lot of people, I think, because of the unusual way that Yarbrough has been handled. And I talked a couple of years ago to his agent at the time, who is no longer his agent, about Mm -hmm. whether he thought there might be some impact there. And and he said he hoped not because, you know, arbitration is based on comps and there just aren't aren't a lot of comps for someone like Ryan Yarbrough. And so like, do you treat him as a starter or a reliever? He's had, a, you know, fairly good win totals, but hasn't made a lot of starts. And so it's kind of a, a weird trick. 
tricky case. And I just kind of wonder, since they are depending on him, you know, depending on what the arguments were that carried the day in that Mm -hmm. case, whether there might be any lingering bitterness there or, you know, maybe it's not fair to pin it on the usage. You know, players sometimes lose arbitration cases for other reasons. Right, right. This came down yesterday, so I haven't had a ton of chances to, yesterday I was recording this, so I haven't had a ton of chances to ask around and and get a sense of what the arguments were and everything. But I I think that's certainly going to be on people's mind. I mentioned it earlier as they they look at the way that the Rays are doing things. And, you know, you can look at it on one hand, and yes, maybe he was held back by the role and the fact that he didn't have as many starts and that he was a bulk innings guy um, for two years. Or you can say, hey, the fact that he was a bulk innings guy got him to the majors probably a little bit faster. And then he became a super two guy as a result. And he's going to get four trips through the arbitration process. And, you know, he's getting 2.3 million this year instead of something closer to the league minimum. So uh, there's two sides to that. I'm really curious to hear uh, hopefully more about what the, uh, the arguments were made in there, because you're right. I mean, so much of this is based on precedent and traditional stats and arbitration. And is this now going to be the precedent for pitchers who are mostly bulk innings guys uh, moving forward? And uh, you know, how can they go about sort of reversing that? And is the league willing to, you know, kind of make a change and make an adjustment for the fact that these pitchers are still really important in the same way that starting pitchers are? I I, I don't know. And I think that's going to be a really uh, tough issue for the industry as a whole to tackle uh, moving forward. And, and so this is not something where, you know, a bulk innings guy is just going to lose his arbitration case every time because mm-hmm. of the role that the team put him in and that he was willing to do, you know, to, Uh, to get an opportunity and help the team. Well, I'm I'm really curious to see where that goes. All right. Well, we've come to the prediction. So the Rays now entering Kevin Cash's seventh season at the helm. Only Bob Melvin and Terry Francona have been managing longer than Kevin Cash, which is kind of incredible. So yeah. (laughs) yeah, some new faces, but lots of talent. Where do you see them ending up when total wise? I think Dakota has them at 86. Meg, you mentioned Fangrass is in the the 500 range. I'm going to say... Oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm going to say 90. Uh, I think they're probably going to finish behind the Yankees in the division, probably right in that range with the Blue Jays. I have them slightly ahead of Toronto, so I'm going with 90. Okay. Well, race fans should be happy to have you back on the beat. They can find you writing at MLB.com and on Twitter at Adam D. Berry. Thanks very much as always, Adam. Yep. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment with Will Salmon to talk about the Brewers. Just a southern man. Going to Wisconsin to marry a Minnesota somebody. I'm getting cold feet, and I fell asleep by a cabin that sits on a frozen lake when nothing ever happens. All right, we are back, and it's time to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. Do that. We are joined by Will Salmon, who covers the Brewers for The Athletic. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Looking forward to chatting. All right. So I suppose we should start with Christian Yelich because the Brewers kind of revolve around him. He signed an extension just prior to the pandemic shutting down baseball, and that hasn't actually kicked in yet, which might make the Brewers a little bit nervous coming off the season that he had. But, you know, he rebounded a bit after his extremely slow start. The numbers don't look like what anyone expected from Christian Yelich. But should we write this off to coming back from an injury, pandemic shortened season, etc.? Are there any concerns that he can't return to MVP contender level? I don't think there should be too much concern. If you look at some of the underlying statistics on him, you see that his hard hit rate, 
battle rate, all that type of stuff is pretty in line with his career numbers. So like when he was making contact, it was what we were used to seeing. The problem was is that he wasn't making as much contact as we are used to seeing. So that was the issue there. And I think aggression had something to do with that. Those of us who watched him every game, sometimes we would see him either swing right through a pitch or take a pitch that would leave us sort of scratching our heads saying, how did he miss that? Or why did he just like let that by? Because those were pitches that he would just crush in 2019, 2018. And he wasn't doing that in 2020. And so I think it was a combination of a few of the things that you mentioned. I think coming off of not having a normalized spring training didn't do him any favors as far as getting into some sort of groove as far as timing goes, especially coming off the injury. We saw that as early as the summer camp where he was swinging and missing a lot against, granted, it was against Brendan Woodruff and a couple of guys like Corbin Burns and a couple of their good relievers, but still, it was Christian Yelich in the box and you were just expecting more. And so he opens the season with that long over. I believe it was like 0 for 26 or something like that. And that was also a huge reason for the batting average to drop, certainly, and some of the other numbers to not look as great as they normally do. But I also point to video as well and like a lack of video that that was allowed to be utilized. Because if you look at, say, his OPS, just to take a a statistic that I think matters here um, in the context of video, if you look at his OPS against like pitchers the starting pitchers second time through it's like half of like what it used to be or what it was in like 2019 2018 it's like not even close not even in the same stratosphere and so i just feel like he he just wasn't making the the adjustments against guys as quickly as we normally see him do do and i just suspect a lot of things to just fall in line for him as far as a normalized a more normalized spring training and some sort of video coming back into the game that, that you're able to utilize, all those things will help them out. We had given the Brewers some guff on this podcast earlier in the offseason because in the face of a very winnable uh, division, they hadn't really done a whole lot. And then they made us look bad by going out and getting Colton Wong. And I think that the the upgrades here for the infield are obvious. Keston Hira, whose bat suffered this year but is generally thought to be good, is one of the worst second base defenders in the game. And the, the stats kind of back that up that not only does he sort of visually struggle, but since his debut in 2019, DRS actually had him as the second worst defender at the position in the majors. And UZR thinks he's just the worst defender at the position, period. So Wong obviously upgrades the infield defense and brings that to the team. But what else does this signing sort of signify for the Brewers? And what does it mean for Hira's sort of long-term trajectory? Sure. I thought it was some sort of like some sort of a pivot toward defense because if you look at the market for for their deficiencies, the corner infield positions especially, there wasn't a there weren't too many great fixes. Sure, they could have gotten Justin Turner or they you know, they could have um, made some made some more, I guess, spirited efforts toward a toward a more traditional sort of power hitting first baseman. Maybe that helps. Maybe that doesn't. They tried on Justin Turner. I think the inevitable outcome came to fruition. He ended up going back to the Dodgers, re-signing there. So all that to say, I feel I felt like it was sort of a pivot toward defense. And the way that they looked at it was, okay, you know, here's what the market is. We can upgrade here since Colton Wong is available. And sure, maybe that doesn't add to our run total in a significant way, the way that maybe we maybe we thought we would try to do entering the winter. 
but run prevention, and it helps us invest more in what the strength of this team was last year, which was its pitching. And so I think that those things are helpful. He also, I think what gets lost is, and some of this has to do with the poor numbers last year offensively from Colton Wong in a very small sample size, but he's a pretty solid hitter. He turned himself into a pretty solid hitter as far as somebody who is going to give you a pretty good at bat. He's going to see some pitches. He's, and sure, the value of that could be debated, but for a team that really struggled to get on base in any way, that's helpful. <laughs> you know, the fact that he's not going to strike out a whole lot, that's probably helpful for this team. I think you could tack on a couple or more home runs just because of him being able to bat from that side in American Family Field. It should help him out. And as far as Keston Hero goes, I think you're absolutely right with how you outlined it. They're essentially going from the worst defender at second base to arguably the best defender at second base. But I think that in moving... Keston here to first, it really solves that issue of, okay, what should we do here to make sure that we're getting some sort of offensive production? Because if you look at, say, Keston here's projected OPS for 2021, it compares pretty favorably to the other options that they would have had on, say, like the free agent market for that position. So I, I did like it there. Now, defensively, how good is he going to be? I would argue better than second base because he's not going to be be throwing the ball clearly as much, uh, but it remains to be seen. I think his range was better than it was in 2019. And anecdotally, I remember a few plays where it was like, wow, that's a tremendous play he just made. He, you know, a diving stop here, deep up the middle, whatever. He, he was making some really nice plays. So I think it helps them on the right side of the infield and it helps their lineup a little bit. But it does give them that sort of option at first base that they didn't have either with a, you know some sort of a reliable offensive threat there. I think we can stick with here for a second. And, you know, when he came up, he was one of my sort of favorite minor league bats to watch. And he had that great rookie year, 140 WRC plus. The pop was there in the bat. I don't want to make too much out of 246 plate appearances, but what went wrong for him last year? And, and how do you expect he's going to try to course correct to sort of return to a better offensive profile? I don't think he just ever made the the adjustment that he needed to. And maybe it was just it happened too fast. And maybe that's a problem of a shortened season for a lot of guys because you're not given the time to really make a key adjustment. But he just had a really hard time making contact on high fastballs, whether they were in the zone or sometimes he would chase them and he would miss that way as well. But I'm more concerned about the strikes, the high fastballs in the strike zone that he was missing. And that was something that pitchers went to time and time again against him. And he just wasn't unable to really make the adjustment there. So it's his turn to do that. There's a lot of faith in him internally from the Brewers to, to, to do that. There were already as good as his offensive profile in the minor leagues was. There, there was some swing and miss there too. Uh, so this wasn't a complete sort of sure. shock just as far as him swinging and missing, maybe at the rate he did, sure, but not the not the fact that they're swinging and missing his profile. I think that's still going to exist. But like you said, like he's a really talented hitter, smart baseball player, a lot of aptitude there. I I, I have faith that he will make the right adjustment here. And I, and it's also worth pointing out too that to keep the perspective of that, this is still somebody who's played up, you know, 140 or so big league games. And I, I just think that he deserves the 
leeway here to sort of write himself just like any other young player that we've seen in recent memory and i think and i suspect that those numbers are going to be better in 2021 so speaking of people who had better numbers corbin burns came back from a nearly nine era in 2019 to a 6th place cy young finish and He seemed like an obvious candidate for some sort of bounce back just because of how high his BABIP and home run per fly ball rate in 2019 were. It was just historic bad luck, seemingly. But I don't know if anyone expected him to go to the other extreme and be one of the best pitchers in the league. So to what extent do you think that was just regression and some bad luck turning into good luck or normal luck? And to what extent do you think there was a true improvement there and that it was related to changes that he made? Yeah, I would say that it's certainly like like anything else, right? It's a combination, but I I would definitely lean more toward me buying into his changes that he made because it was a complete arsenal switch for him like he was a he was formerly the guy who was relying on a four a four seam fastball slider combination and in 2020 heading into 2020 before spring training even started they were trying to get him to work on a two seam fastball build around his slider more often with pitches going in different directions as opposed to just locking in on that same side of the plate, which I think was a major problem for him as well. And I think that's why you saw so many home runs too, was, you know, batters were just keying in on a certain area for him, for him and he really didn't have that other pitch um, to kind of go in a different direction. And now he has a couple of those. I mean, he has like the, these hybrid pitches, I kind of like to call them because it's hard to really, I think trackers had some issues with them as well, where it's really hard to say like, okay, it's that because hmm, maybe it's not, you know, and sometimes I, I felt the urge to ask him, um, which I did and just say, Hey, that, that pitch, was that really a two seamer or, you know, it's just hard to, to judge because they were just, they were that impressive. I thought, um, and in a short sample size too where he was he came into the season made those changes and it was the first time he was implementing some of those pitches and learning how to use them and feeling confident and giving counts i just like the the idea of him sort of refining those pitches i wouldn't say mastering them but certainly refining them and getting better at them and so i like his chances maybe not of certainly repeating those gaudy statistics from 2020 but I'm not so sure if the regression of of his numbers will be as extreme as some people are concerned that they may be. So going into 2020, I guess we'll just stick with the rotation for a second. One of the team's additions was bringing Josh Lindblom over, who had had a prior run in Major League Baseball and then a successful stint with the Bears in the KBO and, you know, got off to a sort of inauspicious start. I think his first start of the year, he had to exit with back cramps that luckily didn't seem like they bothered him too much going forward. But he had a kind of odd season. There was this big divergence between his ERA and his FIP. Uh, He was still striking guys out, but was walking a bunch. And I'm you know, there was this also noticeable difference between his performance when the bases were clean versus when he had guys on. So again, I don't want to make too much of 45 innings. And he had been a consistent performer in his most recent KBO stint. But I'm curious what the team thinks they're going to get in him this year, because I could see an argument for there just being some, you know, unlucky sequencing. And like you said, the, the infield defense wasn't always great, but I think the divergence between his ERA and his FIP merits some exploration. So what should Brewers fans be expecting from Josh this year? Well, when I think of Josh Lindblom, I always think back to a conversation that 
manager Craig Council had with a couple of reporters in spring training about him. And he was sort of asked just how you just did about expectations for Josh Lindblom. And he was just coming off those excellent seasons in the KPO, earned himself a multi-year contract with the Brewers. And Council sort of, in hindsight, nailed it. He said, look, the challenge for Josh is going to be which of these pitches, which which two or three of these pitches do I have today? Because Lindblom can throw about six or seven different pitches. And his issue early in the season was he was trying to throw all of them in like two or th- within a span of like two innings. Sometimes first, you know, first few batters, we were seeing like six or seven, seven different pitches and some of them looked good, some of them didn't. And I felt like he was trying to be way too fine with his approach and trying to sort of fit everything in. And it really didn't do him any favors. And he also has a tendency to overthink. And he's the first to admit that. And so I thought he found himself just really in a bad spot or a troubling spot of trying to sort of throw everything out there, see what sticks, as opposed to what changed for him late in the year was when he went to the bullpen and he really didn't have the time in theory to sort out what he had during the course of an inning or a game. And instead he had to figure that out in the bullpen and say to himself, okay, these are the two or three pitches I have. Let's go with them and let's try to just get strike one. Let's go with strike two. Because as much as his stuff was pretty good and he was getting a lot of swing and miss, he was also walking guys at a really high rate. And that was one of his main concerns throughout the whole season. And it's really what cost him, you know, the high ERA in my opinion, because like you mentioned, the defense wasn't great at times this year in the, on the infield for, for the Brewers. And those guys scored when they were on base. So I, I feel like things are going to be a lot better just by a natural progression and a learning process, a learning curve that he experienced in his return to the United States last last season. So one of the most pleasant surprises of the 2021 season was Devin Williams, who had a Rookie of the Year campaign. I wouldn't say came out of nowhere exactly, but certainly surprised people with how utterly unhittable he was and his changeup or screwball or whatever we're calling it, he calls it a changeup, or actually I guess he calls it the airbender, which is kind of cool, was one of the most famous pitches of the season. So do you think that he can continue to be, if not a .33 ERA guy and a sub-1 FIP guy? Is he sort of the back of the rotation, late inning style work for years to come. I mean, it's hard to know what to make of 27 innings, but he looked as good as you can possibly look in that amount of time. Devin Williams to me has to be the the most challenging guy to sort of pin down from the shortened season because his numbers are just insane. So can he replicate that? Can he duplicate it? Yeah, probably not. I mean, but I don't doubt him because it wasn't as if he was doing anything with smoke and mirrors. I mean, he was striking everybody out. And I also point to the more regional schedule too, because he was basically against these same teams over and over again. Like he faced, I believe it was the the Cubs two or three times, the Pirates two or three times. And, you know, these guys saw him before and they were still failing to make any sort of contact on him. We're talking about somebody who allowed really, really one hit off that changeup who, funny enough, the guy who had the, the hit, Colton Wong, is now his teammate. So kind of a funny thing there. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy, like you mentioned him, coming out of nowhere to an extent because he essentially did. I mean, he had a call up 
in 2019, late in the year, and was solid. But those of us who were in spring training paying attention to the Brewers, we started to see him a lot more confident in his stuff at at that level, and he was turning heads back then. And then he just continued to get better. I think he continued to sort of invest in his body, make sure that he was in the best shape that he could possibly be in and continue to work on a pitch that has always been really good for him. And it's that changeup. So I like where he's at. And I also think that there's reason to think that he could be a bit more multidimensional too, because he also throws a slider that we didn't see really at all last year. And he threw that in the minor leagues and he threw that late into 2019 as well, when he was really starting to breakthrough in in the minor league so maybe there's more more to come from Devin Williams in just different ways because in addition to the changeup, you know people forget that his fastball reaches about 98 miles an hour too so it, it's not just that he's that one pitch guy who is just sequencing it right and throwing it at the right times and just getting guys to miss I mean it's some good stuff there and you know he's somebody that four years to come sure I could see him as a staple to the back end of their bullpen He's not the only dominant reliever in the Brewers' bullpen, although their mainstay had, by his standards, sort of a less good year. I think we should talk about Josh Hader. His stats are sort of an interesting amalgamation of things when you look at what he did last year. He threw his fastball less often and threw the slider more. He gave up fewer home runs, but he walked more guys. He gave up more ground balls. It all kind of came together into a a less effective package, although again, it was 19 innings. So I'm curious, we're used to this dominant strikeout machine, albeit one who occasionally gives up some home runs. What is the 2021 forecast for Hayter? I look at him sort of similar to some of those instances I mentioned with Christian Yelich, where you were just used to seeing him so dominant and produce in such a way that the time where it doesn't happen exactly the way that you envision it or expect it, you sort of are just perplexed and you're like, wait, what is going on here? And one instance that came to mind was that day where, you know, he had really an issue with his command and he ended up, I think, walking the bases loaded, walked in a run, and it was just not something that we were used to seeing whatsoever with Josh Hader. And like you mentioned, there's there's a lot of funky data there and some of that's the short season. And it was just a, a, a weird year for him because he also wasn't used in the way that we were normally seeing him used in 2019, 2018, sort of that multi-inning sort of role. He was more just a one-inning guy. Uh, and that, I think, is a more of a product of just the personnel that the Brewers had. Sure, Devin Williams came along and carved out a huge role late in games, but they also had David Phelps and they had a couple of other guys for portions of the year that they were relying on too. So it really just was a more was a deeper bullpen. But as just far as Hater and I guess the forecast for 2021, I still expect a lot of good things. Uh, the velocity was a bit down at times last year. But I guess an argument could be made as long as he's healthy that maybe that's a product of just the adrenaline not being there without fans for a late in guy. I would have to really dig into that a little bit more to, to, to feel strongly about that sort of theory. But it's out there and it's something that some people around the Brewers have suggested as well. Similar to a couple of other guys that we talked about, he was really utilizing something different with a different pitch that he was incorporating or not, maybe not so much different. I I should probably rephrase that and say that it was a pitch that he had used sparingly that he was using a lot more and incorporating it 
into his game plan a lot more than we had ever seen. And so I think that takes an adjustment period as well. I'm willing to sort of give him a bit of a mulligan on that just because it was all new. And I think if you give him an offseason, you give him a traditional spring training to work out the kinks on that, he should be a lot better. Meg and I were talking last week about some of the least productive positions in baseball over the past several seasons, and shortstop for the Brewers was one of them. We've talked about the right side of the infield, so what about the left? As you mentioned, there was some interest in Justin Turner. He did not sign with Milwaukee, so you've got a few people in the mix there. You've got Orlando Arcia, who has been part of the problem over the past few seasons. Still at shortstop, you've got Luis Arias. You have maybe some other options there who could establish themselves, Daniel Robertson. So what's the plan for shortstop and third? And do you see any potential for more productive seasons this year? Well, I think it's, I thought it was going to be a lot more interesting to see what would have happened if Turner did sign with the Brewers, because then it's like, okay, well, who do they really want at shortstop? Because Orlando Arcia, like like you said, he was better last season in a couple of areas, but he still was below below average across the board or average across the board, and that's really not that great, right? And that's and I, and I say that just because he's a, he's a fan favorite for for the Brewers. Uh, fans really like him, and they think highly of him defensively. But even defensively, his numbers were not that great, and so you know. I, I, I would not have been surprised if he was non-tendered way back when either. So, But now you go into the season um, and he's projected as your starting shortstop with uh, Luis Urias at third base right now. Daniel Robertson could climb up sort of a depth chart or claim a spot and prove himself during spring training and earn some playing time and some sort of timeshare at third base with Urias. I could see that happening. But I, I feel like Urias deserves to play. And look, if you're trading Trent Grisham and Zach Davies to the Padres and you're getting Luis Urias back, you want to see that guy play. Uh, at least that's my opinion. And I don't think that it's fair to judge the guy off of 2020 when he had, at the beginning of the year, an injury um, that cost him all of spring training. Then he was in COVID protocol for the first couple of weeks of the 2020 truncated season, you know, came back, was playing a bunch of different positions, never really got into sort of a, a groove as far as playing time goes. So I don't know. I, I still look at Urias and I, I, I like his contact skills. I, I like his ability to get on base. I, I like the way he runs the bases, just little things like that that I think adds up to a pretty solid player. So I'd like to see him play more, get more opportunities on the left side. But right now it's looking like Orlando Arcia at shortstop. And perhaps a timeshare with Robertson and Urias at third base, unless they make a, an external addition there. I want to ask about rotation depth sort of generally. Um, by our depth chart projections, the Brewers rotation actually grades out reasonably well, um, sort of in the, the top third of the league, just a little bit below. But it doesn't strike me as one that is particularly deep beyond their starting five. So I'm curious what you know the plan 
for them is when, you know, the inevitable comes and somebody goes down with injury. I know that they brought Jordan Zimmerman back or signed him and he's probably in line to be a fan favorite as a Wisconsin native. But beyond him, what are their plans as far as depth goes? Are there guys in the upper minors who they're excited about who you would expect to sort of slot in if somebody in the in the starting five is unable to make their traditional allotment of starts? Even in the starting five, there are some question marks there. So I agree with you that they're, I agree with the projections. They should be reasonably okay, you know, more toward good than bad there. But still, there are some questions with a couple that are attached to a couple of those pitchers that you're really not sure what you're getting. And I guess you could say that with every staff in the majors, right? But I feel like with the Brewers for a team that is really relying on good pitching again this year, or at least hoping to get it again this year, those are significant. So after, say, Woodruff, Burns, Lindblom, there's Adrian Hauser, who projects to be in the rotation. And then after that, they could put Eric Lauer there for the number for a number five guy. They also have Freddie Peralta. And so that gives them, I guess, six options that, that they would feel pretty good about. And also with the Brewers, it's worth mentioning that they don't really play by traditional rules here. So when you're talking about starting pitchers, and the innings change from 2020 to 2021 and trying to be cognizant of that and mitigating any potential arm issues as much as possible. I assume that they'll be a little bit more on the creative end as far as what we may or may see and the way they use their guys. What I mean by that is maybe there's more piggyback starts with guys. I know that's not exactly crazy by any means these days, but we could see more of that. Uh, we saw some of that last year as well, and that could be one way that they sort of address that depth concern. Beyond that, you mentioned Zimmerman. There aren't these top prospects at the higher levels. They exist more lower. You know, Ethan Small, Ashby, Antoine Kelly, those guys have yet to pitch above, say, A-ball. So this year is important for them to sort of get there. But they can't really rely on those guys for depth quite yet. Instead, instead they have somebody like uh, Alec Bettinger, Dylan File. Both those guys have been recently placed on the 40-man roster. And I would assume that those would be the next in line if something, if an issue or a need were to arise. Also, I could see them all adding somebody like a Brett, uh, like a Brett Anderson, who they had last year. And maybe they see their rotation find it a little bit wanting in that area of depth and say, hey, we need somebody like Brett Anderson again. So I don't rule that out quite yet either. So you mentioned some lower level prospects who are some ways away, and that's kind of an issue with the Brewers. We talked earlier in this episode about the Rays, who have the consensus best farm system in baseball. The Brewers tend to rank at or near the bottom of organizational rankings. So how do you think they got to that point? Obviously, they have promoted and graduated some players, which is the good way to have a low farm system ranking. But do you see that as a sign of some larger failure when it comes to either talent acquisition or player development? Have they made any changes in that area? And do you think that will hamstring them going forward? It's a mix of a few things. They made a couple of huge trades. One clearly was the Christian Yelich one, which eliminated a few of their top prospects from the system. Uh, the Giants trade also that took away another you know high caliber prospect that otherwise would have either made his you know major league debut with the Brewers or at least been one of their high prospects as of right now, probably the former. And also 
the promotion of Kessinahira uh, a couple of years back. That was one as well, a couple of their pitchers. But like you also listed there with the question, some of these guys just haven't developed either. You know, Corey Ray, for instance, is the first name that comes to mind. Their first round draft pick from 2015, yet to make a, his major league debut. And really, the, despite their need in center field last year, was not called upon at all, which tells you that he still has some work to do as far as distinguishing balls and strikes and improving his eye there and his plate discipline. And there are a couple of guys like that, you know, Lucas Ersig at third base. There, there's more names the more you go into it. So I think that they're, they've done really well with developing pitchers in recent years. Corbin Burns, who we talked about, is, is a name that comes to mind. But there's also Freddie Peralta. There's Brandon Woodruff, Adrian Hauser. There's other guys that they've promoted through their system. Drew Rasmussen is another guy that I expect big things from in 2021, who's a homegrown player as well. So the pitching side, I feel like they've been, I would say, almost impressive with the way that they've developed guys, especially in the context of their franchise history, where that was not something that the Brewers were known for, of course, right? Now, the problem has been the position players. I feel like they've made some switches um, in their player development, which may help them along in years to come. Uh, Sarah Goodrum is now their minor league hitting coordinator, and she has received rave reviews from around baseball that I've spoken to, clearly also internally, otherwise she wouldn't have gotten promoted. But she's somebody that people feel strongly about that will excel at the position. Jake McKinley is a, a guy who is pretty much in charge of their player development, and his first year in that role was last year, and he had to really make something out of an alternate training site, which was unprecedented. So by all accounts, he did well there in organizing and, and getting that established for the Brewers and helping them along in that area. So I feel like they have some key people in place that have really good reputations and track records right now. Um, it's just going to take a little bit of time. You know, they've invested pretty heavily in the international market. And so if you look at their sort of like list of say top 40 prospects, the guys who are in, say, the top 10 and top 15, a lot of them are international prospects, and almost all of them, if not all of them, are going to be in the lower level. So I think that it's a system that is correctly ranked toward the bottom right now, but it is one that maybe two or three years from now, we see closer to the top 15 or even top 10 if they retain these guys. So my last question for you about the Brewers is about someone who is not actually on the team, Ryan Braun. Braun says he is not currently interested in playing, but will continue to stay in touch with the Brewers. Will they continue to stay in touch with him? That's a great last question. It, it, you know, Ryan Braun these days reminds me of that line from like a Bob Dylan song where it's like you would you would not think think of him, but he was famous long ago. It's like he was he's sort of like in the background, and like maybe if they bring him back, he sort of uh, improves their bench. And because right now they could stand to have a fourth outfielder type, or if the DH is in in, in play. But other than that, I mean, he's a part-time player who I don't think will make all that much of a difference if he if he's on the team at this point. I could see him just like call, calling it a career at this point as well. Uh, him saying that, hey, I don't currently feel like playing. <laughs> I don't. That kind of tells you everything you need to know about his situation right now. Uh, he, you can make the argument that maybe he'd like to play in front of his fans if there are fans, because he is still 
beloved in Milwaukee, uh, regardless of what his reputation is outside of Milwaukee. And so for him to play in front of his fans one last time, that may be something that he would want to do, but we don't know if there will be fans. So there's a lot up in the air. And frankly, the whole way that this has played out, as far as we still don't know definitively, doesn't surprise me uh, because there's a lot in play. And I just feel like he needs to have those sort of answers to, to make his call. And I think the way that he's leaning right now would probably be toward a, toward this being it for his career. I want to close for me, at least with a more macro question. When we project the NL Central at Fangraphs, we have the Cardinals ever so slightly ahead of the Brewers at the top of the standings. They're basically tied. And so on the one hand, I think you could argue that they have done enough to be competitive in a division that is pretty soft and uh, doesn't have a runaway favorite. But I also think that if you're a fan of this team, it's easy to look at uh, what they've done this offseason, the sort of addition of Wong aside, and and view it as a missed opportunity to kind of catapult themselves into a more favorable position. So how does the club view itself within the context of the division, both for this year and then going forward? Are they viewing themselves as sort of division favorites or at least strong contenders? Or are they aware that the <laughs> the additions they've made so far might not be enough to push them past St. Louis? Yeah, the, the, the Brewers model is always since David Stearns has been in control of this club, the model has been like, let's give ourselves as many bites of the apple as possible, year in, year out sort of thing. It's kind of similar to the Rays in that sense, where it's like, you know, maybe we'll um, target some market inefficiencies here and maybe we'll be just good enough throughout the whole year to sort of be in the mix and then get hot at the right time or during the postseason stretch. That's part of their thinking is that they, and, and with that, you have to be cognizant of years to come because if that's your goal, then you're not going to sort of necessarily strike on a free agent and, and go all in for that one year. You're thinking two years, three years down the road as well based on that model. So there's that. And sometimes that can sound pretty uninspiring, especially in the context of, like you said, the division was there for the taking and still, frankly, is. So you could have made the argument that if there was ever a year to sort of deviate from that, here we, here it was. Uh, that said, uh, the, the Brewers feel pretty good about their chances still in the NL Central. I, I think they look at it and say, okay, sure, the Cardinals upgraded a bit with Arenado, but there's still reason to like the Brewers pitching staff. There's still reason to think that Christian Yelich, Keston Hera, Hera Aviasel Garcia, Omar Narvaez, Lorenzo Cain, all of those guys, with the exception of Cain who opted out, all of those guys had the worst years of their career pretty much. The theory is, is that that's not going to happen again. Uh, so just by internal improvement, you would think that the Brewers will be a better team than last year as well. So that's kind of their thinking. Um, and also, look, you know, just because they, they didn't make that high profile move aside from Wong, that doesn't mean that they, they won't do that during the season and they won't look to upgrade at third base, perhaps midseason or, you know, a couple of months into the season. I, I still think that that's a, a strong possibility for them if they're inclined to do that. Okay, so we'll end as always by putting you on the spot and asking for a win total prediction here and 
This is tough to do in a normal year. It's probably even harder to do coming off of 2020 and all of the uncertainty there. And boy, we didn't even talk about some sources of that uncertainty, like Lorenzo Cain coming off of a season when he opted out after five games or Omar Narvaez's bat just cratering last year. So it's hard to project some of these individual players. But if you put it all together, where do you see this team coming out? Yeah, it's it's funny you you list those things too because it's like you know all of a sudden the Brewers are just like oh yeah they are actually kind of interesting right uh, because they they have all that uncertainty in the backdrop of like of their season uh, but yeah I give them probably like around eighty five eighty six wins and some of that is just because they were below five hundred last year that's squeaked into the playoffs like I said in a fraction of a regular season with everybody failing to come close to what they expected to do so do i think this is a, a some sort of a great team now um i think they have some obvious issues that they took a step toward improving a little bit uh one of those was the the corner infield spots but they haven't quite addressed it fully so for me i i do feel like they will be a, a solid team that maybe squeeze into the playoffs again but 85 wins is probably where where i would pin it down okay One thing I just noticed is that Craig Council is the longest tenured manager in the National League. (laughs) Now, I don't have a question about that, but just wanted to point it out because he's been the manager for less than six years and there's been so much turnover among managers that he is now sort of the longest lived in terms of his current job. All right, you can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. That's S-A-M-M-O-N. And you can find him covering the Brewers regularly at The Athletic. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Will. Well, anytime, guys. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you're happy to have the preview series back. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Benji Riches, Matthew Foley, Regina Hogel, Aaron Danielson, and Michael Hank. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another non-preview episode next time. Talk to you a little later this week. Doesn't mean-